once again, Steve Dunn Podcast. I'm joined today by Salim Ukda, owner of Ouroboros Mediations, a certified LGBT business enterprise. I'm so happy today to be talking to another mediator, and I hope that I'll be having many conversations with mediators. Salim comes to the profession with a unique background and perspective. He's younger uh, than most of us who do this, and he's also not a lawyer. Uh, And this in many other ways, Salim has insight into the business of mediation and the practice of mediation. It's great talking to him. I know you'll enjoy our conversation. I'd love to hear from you how you first got into mediation. And I ask particularly because you came into the field at a much younger age than most of us do. So how did that happen? So I was working at the Mecklenburg County Courthouse as a judicial assistant in caseload management. And that was in preparation of eventually going to law school. And I just realized on on my 26th birthday that I didn't think that going to law school was for me, which led to a kind of quarter life crisis. And then um, just a couple of months later, I just realized that I needed to make a change and pivot. Um, And, you know, sitting next to the ADR coordinator uh, who was um, Katie Dolan at the time, which you know who Katie is. Katie now works with us here at Miles Mediation and Arbitration. I know, six degrees of separation, right? Um, I just realized that like my skill set as a person is to dealing with people in meaningful and um, intimate ways. And I think that instead of starting all over in a new industry, in a new um, space, mediation was possible. So I did my research of all 50 states and I realized in North Carolina I could become a mediator. So in 2018, I spent a lot of my time getting trained and then I left the courthouse and opened up my company, Uberos Mediations. So you and I met in uh, one of the trainings that you went to, the Family Financial Certification course. Uh, you and I were sitting in the back row, as was my custom to sit in the back row of any classroom uh, that I ever uh, attended. Uh, that's how we got to know each other. Uh, I quickly determined that family financial mediation was uh, a realm in which I had no business <laughs> because with my own background as a lawyer, I never intersected, um, never worked in that field at all, which is generally the family law, uh, divorce for the most part, child custody and stuff like that. Uh, but this is a big part of your professional life now. Uh, what do you bring to the family financial world of mediation? Well, I also worked in family court, so I understand the procedural aspects of divorce. And also, kind of as a paralegal, kind of speaking to the uh, layperson about what they're going to go through, um, interpreting, you know, kind of the realities that they're going to be facing, um, how long it's going to take, and some of the repercussions of going through the court system and waiting, I think it's really important for people to understand. Well, it sounds like you came to the profession of mediation from working at the courthouse. Did you have any familiarity before that job at the courthouse with mediation or, you know, the, the pro the role that mediation plays in the legal process? Uh, yes, obviously with uh, some of my paralegal education, but I And I thought it was fascinating in general, but I never really dived in until the courthouse. Um, I was an intern before I was employed um, by the courthouse, and I visited the custody mediation department, and I sat into mediation, and I really loved the magic of it. And I think that there is an aspect of us being mediators and then us being conflict resolution professionals and practitioners. And that conflict resolution aspect is so important because 
I think that there's an alchemy that happens, that we are transforming conflict into peace. And it is a true wizardry <laughs> that um, mediators kind of forget because we're, we're trying to work within the system of law. Um, and that conflict resolution piece is relational, um, cultural, and I guess societal. Well, I'm very interested in, in everything you've just said. Uh, you used the terms alchemy and wizardry and uh, what this suggests, and I agree with you, is that there's uh, at least as much art to science in the practice of mediation. And it is my observation that many of us who do this, um, at least in terms of the state of the art today, are uh, operating largely on instinct and relying on our uh, personality and emotional intelligence. Uh, but you are thoughtful about the process itself, and you read and study uh, about conflict resolution in a deliberate way. And it occurs to me that uh, for someone in his 20s uh, who's got plenty of time to gain experience uh, as a mediator in the coming years, that there's a great opportunity to uh, define and refine your practice and your craft. And I'm curious what uh, your studies have suggested or revealed to you so far. Well, I finally hit that 3-0 th uh, to this year, Steve. Uh, oh, oh, yeah, okay. Well, so. you're aging. You're aging quick. I will, Salim, I will always think of you as a guy in his 20s. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully, you know, that just speaks to my youthfulness and my uh, well-regiment skincare routine. Uh, but I think that conflict literacy is something that we haven't, focused on too much, especially in the U.S. There has been a devolution um, in that space, which is understanding and utilizing the best language and techniques to minimize conflict, um, to accept conflict, and to uh, handle conflict in a pr uh, productive manner. And ac accept it. Accept it that it's going to be inevitable and that it's just like a, a natural aspect of living. Well, one of the things that you um, have pointed out is that conflict is everywhere. And so it's not an unusual condition uh, for us to be involved in conflict. In fact, on a daily basis, all of us encounter, de depending on how you define the term, uh, we're constantly in conflict all of the time. And so it can, I imagine it can be uh, quite a happy thing to acknowledge that and to attain comfort with that in the process of beginning to tackle the discrete problem at hand in a mediation. Oh, completely. Uh, I think when it comes down to the mediation, uh, you know, we, we talk so much about interest-based negotiation opposed to uh, positional bargaining. Um, and then there's always that Monty Python skit where people are haggling or haggling, excuse me, um, for a certain item. And it's so not necessary because, you know, we can have win-win solutions. And I think that because of the way things are structured now, there is a zero-sum game. There is only a win-lose option, and that has caused a lot of problems. And I think that when it comes down to historically, that has happened more and more in our country. I'm thinking all the way back to McCarthyism, um, and then fast forward a little bit to this documentary that I think is absolutely great, which is um, The Best of Enemies with the uh, debates with William F. Buckley and uh, Gore Vidal, where they had a distinct vision um, from a conservative and liberal uh, perspective of how this country was supposed to be progressing, and they just went head to head, and that uh, morphed into personal attacks and sensationalism that 
I think is connected to the creation of CNN to Jerry Springer's to the Real Housewives of, you know, whatever county, you know. And I think that that's fascinating because it really shows a certain type of tribalism, a certain type of um, anemic uh, position on what conflict is, and a stubbornness, a stubbornness and ignorance to how to understand or politely disagree but still finding ways that we can work together and that that's a huge problem now do you think that the tribalism that you describe is the natural state that we all live in and that we bring to the conflict in our lives or do you think that it is a regrettable uh, distraction or sideline uh, from our essential nature I think it's a sideline to our essential nature because we innately love, but we learn to hate. And I think that we can get siloed in our own perspective and our own reality, um, that it doesn't leave a lot of space for other valid truths, right? Like if you think about the matrix, for example, if you're taking the red pill or the blue pill, I think that the red pill are different shades of red for uh, different people and there's still some truth in it. And understanding different perspectives and different realities makes a, a true amalgamation of what life is. I'm intrigued by mediation as a force for good in the world versus mediation as a job <laughs> and a business. And, uh, and, and it, relatedly, I think a lot about uh, the theory versus the practice of mediation and conflict resolution, right? So on the one hand, um, we've got our nature as human beings and uh, the constraints imposed upon us by our upbringing and by the society, our society. And, uh, and we, we've got the emotion that we experience uh, as a result of being people who are involved in conflict. We have our identity. Uh, we, we all uh, have physical bodies. We all have, uh, we're all of a certain age. We have a race and a sex and a, and a cultural uh, context in which we have grown. Um, and then at the same time, there's strictly pragmatic considerations at play on the day of mediation, right? We have a discrete problem that we need to solve. And uh, I'm constantly thinking about sort of the difference or the interplay between uh, what I would call like highfalutin ideas about uh, theories of conflict resolution versus the nuts and bolts practicalities of are we going to settle this thing at one hundred fifty thousand or one hundred seventy five thousand? You know, like wh which is it going to be? And I'm I'm curious how you uh, bring those things together in your own practice. I think that I try to mold both aspects together, whether it's like the functionality of a mediation where you have an opening contention, when you have things like bracketing, caucusing, etc. cetera. Uh, but then having aspects of transformative mediation is understanding the inner workings and the um, relational aspects of the people involved and focusing on the holistic healing that can happen during a mediation to have people feel heard and seen and to uh, speak their truth and have their truth be displayed for the other person to really absorb. I think that for certain aspects like employment and business disputes, um, there might be a real need for those real pragmatic aspects and those functions um, but then for family I think that there's so much more at stake in the kind of 
soft skill realms. And it's, it's, it's a, such a hard uh, line to walk in. And it's not something that you can walk on the line all the time, but I think you zigzag and uh, bob and weave all the time. Um, well, a huge now. part of the practice is adapting to the circumstances that you encounter and relating to people. I, it, it, I describe the job a lot to people as um, just getting to know people real fast. <laughs> yeah. yeah. First thing in the morning, we, you know, I, we, we're getting to know each other. And it is my job as the mediator to establish some kind of channel of communication and rapport with you, the party, or you, the lawyer, and to establish some kind of credibility with you really quickly, right? Because we're really, you know, almost always we're just going to be together on that one day. Yeah. And ideally at some point, you know, it, although it is not our job to opine about substantively how the matter should be resolved, like what the nuts and bolts of the actual settlement should be, you still have to have a trust factor with the participants in order to facilitate uh, a meaningful conversation and to, um, you know, be candid and honest with folks, whether that means you're coming across as supportive or whether it means you're coming across as challenging in certain moments. And it's um, it's hard to do. And, and what I started out by saying is that I feel like a lot of us are relying on our natural I don't know if personality is the right word or I think instinct is a lot of it. And I've always thought that we could benefit from a little more rigorous and organized thought and training, right? You know, some of the reading that you do um, out there in the world about this practice is uh, really illuminating. I, th I think I feel like a lot of what we do is psychological uh, and that the psychological literature probably could shed a lot of light on our work. I think some of it is um, game theoretic. I think some of, some yep. of it is spiritual. Uh, it borders on um, counseling at times. Um, and I'm, I'm just intrigued by uh, what you see as in the coming decades, you know, uh, in your in your own evolution as a mediator and a business person, how you bring all those disparate fields together uh, into your work. I think it's all about layering um, and just speak about the quickness that we have to have to make connections within the mediation and build that trust. I think the most um, informative thing that I experienced um, when I was first starting my business was being a Lyft driver. Literally, I had to, in you know, a five to 20 minute ride, make the person feel comfortable, feel safe um, and at ease to you know, make them happy enough to give me five stars um, and also get them to their destination uh, with minimal frustration on both ends. And that's really key. And that speaks to the psychological aspect. Um, and when it comes to the layering that you were mentioning, we have to think about universal needs yet again that we all have so i don't know if you know about the scarf model um, but it is some universal needs that we all have that is so important to our satisfaction is scar is that an acronym that yes. stands for something is mm -hmm. it now is this what we're talking about like air <laughs> and then water <laughs> or is, are we talking about psychological needs psychological needs okay so we have a need for status. We have a need for certainty, relatedness, autonomy, and fairness. And usually there's like a test that um, specifically states out um, and measures how much of those needs that we individually want and need. And it always comes down to fairness. We have a high need for fairness and the, the four letters that um, are before fairness, kind of, it's our barometers to see what is fair. 
I think one thing that we get hang, hung up with is the first, which is status. And I think that the way that people view us and regard us um, is such a pitfall because once we are, you know, seen as not in the in-group, as a lower status, if when we're dealing with elitism uh, that happens in everyday life for whatever reason, whether it's pedigree, whether, whether it comes to race or creed, um, or sexual orientation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it makes us feel a type of way and, you know, speaks to trauma or speaks to, like, inequities that we rage against. And it goes back to that tra- uh, that conflict narrative of, like, having a need to be regarded and to well and um, to be accepted, but not having that and feeling exiled or alienated i'm intrigued by the fundamental need for fairness um that people experience in the i guess this is what we experience in life and therefore when we are involved in a process of conflict resolution we experience it there as well and it occurs to me that a lot of what i'm doing in mediations uh often is uh, encouraging a letting go of uh, a concern regarding the fairness of the outcome. (laughs) But it occurs to me that the fairness of the process may be the important thing. Um, So that in the process, mediation, by the way, is nothing more than a structured conversation about resolution right so it it is an occasion upon which the the parties to a conflict often a legal conflict uh, but not always come together to discuss how to resolve it and whether we can resolve it and uh, as you were talking about the scarf concept uh, i was thinking about fairness and what I'm turning over in my mind now, and I wonder if you agree with this, is that the fairness of the process is essential, right? We, we go way out of our way to appear to be, and in fact to be, uh, impartial and neutral and, um, and, and fair, I think is, is a good way to put it, even though we're not decision makers with respect to the conflict. Um, but it is immensely useful I think, in conflict resolution for the participants to make peace with the fact that the outcome itself may not uh, align with their conception of fairness, right? That, uh, it, th- that there's something about simply having it be over with <laughs> that is worthwhile mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and desirable um, and that, you know, a sort of embracing or letting go of a results oriented conception of fairness uh, can be essential in getting the dispute resolved. I I wonder if if you agree with that. Oh, I agree with it wholeheartedly. There's so many mediations that I've dealt with that, you know, one of the parties, whether it's the grievant or the uh, respondent or the disputants in general, don't get anything that they want, but they just felt heard. Um, and I think that that's so important to just their peace of mind and their closure. Um, and I know that closure for us in our everyday lives may not be a um, achievable goal. That there's relationships that we have um, that go through conflict loops. And we just, you know, try to best the person that we're um, com- having a conflicting relationship with and try to obliterate them. Well, I know that one of the things that you have studied is a book by Amanda Ripley called High Conflict, How We Get Trapped and How We Get Out. Uh, and one of the uh, stories that she goes into is about a mediator named Gary Friedman who 
Um, he's a professional mediator, touchy feely, conflict resolving mm-hmm. type of guy who all of a sudden one day decides uh, that he's going to run for office. So he becomes, uh, you know, his local councilman. And, and his idea is that he's going to come in and he's going to bring, you know, his uh, advanced theories of uh, resolution to the political world. And lo and behold, over the the first few years he's in office, he gets embroiled in these really intense disputes, these really vitriolic uh, kind of like political warfare with his neighbors. And I think it speaks to what you what you just talked about. I think we use the phrase conflict loops, like this sort of like uh, sense of being into a conflict where it becomes all-consuming. And so how do you see the role of the mediator in, uh, and how do you do it? I mean, practically, as a mediator, how do you help the uh, the people that you're working with break free? I think the way to do it is to boil everything down to, yet again, that desire that's being unmet. Um. What is the principle that you're trying to uphold? What is the uh, want that you need that you feel like you, it's eluding you? Um, what is the fear that um, you that you think is haunting you um, within this relationship, within this dynamic, within this mediation? Um, you know, I think that triggers and trauma is something that we talk about so often but once you cut down you know the feedback or the static it just comes to one thing which is like there's a thing that i want um i want unity i want you know openness i want a certain level of restraint or uh, care and compassion within this, you know, deal, within this relationship, within the process of mediation and speaking to that and saying like, first of all, one, you matter (laughs) and we hear you. And I think that that person could want a similar aspect um, within this mediation shows to both of the parties that like there's a human being standing uh, in front of them and it's not just smoke and mirrors and opacity. There's something I think about the process itself and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and I mean that in a couple of levels. One is the, the fact that you're together on a certain day to do a certain thing. Yes. That, that there is a collective purpose that everybody understands. And um, you have spoken about the importance of sharing purpose, establishing purpose, so that there can be uh, a common understanding among the participants in a mediation. This is why we're here. This is what we're doing. And that's how we know how, where to direct our energies and you know, what to keep our eye on. Like what of all the things in the world that we could be thinking or talking about, today in this moment, we're talking about resolving this dispute. And so just that organizing principle yes. is incredibly important. And then alongside that, there is an etiquette and a ritual that has developed around mediation itself. Uh, you referred before to caucusing, which is our practice of uh, d- dividing up into separate rooms so that the mediator can have private conversations with uh, each of the parties, which facilitates a certain type of conversation and allows for um, a, a, an openness um, uh, an opportunity for folks to speak truthfully um, and feel safe in that um, process. And um, you have also talked about, uh, you also mentioned safety. As a Lyft driver, you mentioned how important it is. If you're trying to get five stars, which you are, uh, your passengers need to feel safe. And as human beings, we are conditioned uh, evolution by through the process of evolution 
to be constantly scanning our horizon for threats, right? And if we can, only, only if we can free ourselves from that task, from that distraction, are we then able to focus on our purpose uh, of resolution? And so what is the role of, um, of the mediator in creating those conditions and, and how do you do it? Well, I think the, the, the role of the mediator is to be the authority in the room that keeps the, the, the ritual, this hollowed um, meeting ground pure. And I, I think that when it comes to the art of gathering, which there's a book called The Art of Gathering, which is so great, um, it's just always being present, understanding that we as people have to warm up together and just having the mediator kind of flip the switches and, you know, kind of keep the heat running and making sure that everything comes to a simmer so we can have frank conversations, clear conversations, where people understand what we're saying, understands the benefits, uh, which, you know, obviously uh, representation will get into the uh, true uh, implications of decisions uh, for their clients in their best interest. But we can just boil it down and engage in those, that brainstorming to see what's out there, what can be, you know, something that's reasonable and actual uh, executable goal and something that they can live with. And that's, that's the, the real thing. It's like almost like a preacher or a reverend, you know, standing up at the pulpit and having, you know, something that really speaks to the parishioner's soul um, in a way and as a call to action, right? And that's what we're, we're doing. Um, that call to action is a transaction that will lead to hopefully a compromise and a resolution. And that comes back to that methodology, that you, you know, you're a bracketing guy, you, um, you are just trying to get to, you know, a resolution, whether it's three hours or nine hours or a week long. And um, you'll, you will kind of keep on scooping up the dirt until you hit water. Um, and that's, that's amazing. And for some other people who, are in our field it's less about the shoveling and more about the you know milling and nurturing until you have a sapling and and i think that they're they're valid they're both valid i mean some just takes longer and the purpose is a bit different which healing and transaction uh transacting is um so it's so such a different method but I think that it's fair um, depending on who you're dealing with when you uh, you mentioned bracketing now twice and I feel I, one of the things I've learned is that it's important to define terms for people yes. who might be listening who have no idea what the terms mean right yes. and uh, so uh, br bracket is a uh, it's a way of talking about money in uh, mm -hmm. in our in our field where you essentially propose instead of saying, you know, I'll, I'll give you a hundred dollars. You might say, uh, I propose that we in this negotiation negotiate between $50 and $150, yes. right? Saying so, that's a bracket. So it's a range. Um, and what you've described is, uh, through bracket Bra brackets is one of many techniques that we can use. Uh, in, in my case is certainly the number of dollars at stake is almost always uh, a major term. And sometimes it's really the only one that really matters. You know, everything else can kind of be worked through if we can sort of agree on that one. Uh, but what you were saying about 
you know, the, the steam shovel versus the, the miller and uh, the uh, digging to hit water versus the planting of a tree uh, causes me to think about what's the goal, right? And I have had, I have always taken it for granted. And we've talked about this before. I, you know, I've always just taken it for granted as a consumer of mediation services. You know, as a lawyer, I yeah. hired mediators, right? And, and even as a mediator myself, I, I'd always kind of assumed that the goal was to settle the case, <laughs> right? Yeah. That was the point. And I had a conversation with a mediator very memorably one time uh, in which she said, well, you know, if you think about it, what, what is the purpose of the mediation? Is it to settle the case or is it to uh, expand the range of possibilities for the benefit of everyone? And I, I noodled over that a little bit and I, I'd never really know where I, where I got with it. <laughs> but I wonder for you, what, what do you consider the job to be? I think it's to provide options and expanding someone's mindset. And I think that this speaks to the type of mediations that you primarily handle and what the type of mediations that I primarily handle. As a divorce mediator and um, sometimes handling um, probate estate and will matters, which is, you know, sometimes like sibling mediation or family mediations about um, deceased people. It's so difficult to think about, you know, mediation is, is just a transaction because I still feel a sense of success when you get a partial mediation. Well, let me, let me just say this. One of the differences is that it sounds like in most of your cases, um, family and pro family just in yeah. general, right? Yeah. Which that there's gonna be an ongoing relationship, right? Yes. Maybe, maybe there's children involved in your co-parenting, even, and even if there's not, even if you're just becoming ex-spouses, there's still going to be some kind of an ongoing relationship. You got friends, you got family, you're you're gonna know each other. Whereas in a lot of my cases in the civil litigation world, I will tell you as the mediator, a lot of times I try to get traction with the concept of like, hey, wouldn't it be nice? if you never had to see this person again, as long as you live, like, yeah. you know, like that's an, that's something that's on the table. And usually that's an attractive proposition <laughs> for the yeah. parties on both sides. Whereas in your world, you have this concept of an ongoing relationship that's, um, that you have to account for. And what I'm hearing you say is that that may inform your approach to the mediation process itself and the style with which um, you come to it. Yes, and the aspect that you have people involved that aren't in the mediation that you have to account for. Um, and those people might be more important than all of your needs. And I'm speaking about children in, in particular, that you know, two people might have the well-being and interests of the child um, that precedes their interests with in this mediation. And I think that that's a whole nother level to the mediations that I deal with, that you're kind of thinking about abstract um, needs and abstract futures. And that's where that expanding of the possibilities of what life, expanding uh, the possibilities of what life looks like is so important. Um, and that getting a resolution isn't the end goal because having a poor re resolution can affect the lives of these litigants or these disputants for the, the rest of their lives, you know, not having a, you know, payout of alimony in one lump sum in comparison to over, you know, a couple of years is very different. You know, if you have a lump sum of money, then you can buy a house, you can invest it, you can do a lot of different things. If you get into a situation where child support is established um, at a, a low rate and you have to go to get a modification of child support that takes a long time and may never uh, be adequate enough, then you're child may not be able to um, live at, or achieve the status that they would like to have with their peers and kind of ostracizes them. 
Is, I, it, is it fair to say in most of your cases uh, the participants are represented by counsel? Um, some, yes. I think it's a, a, a little bit more pro se. Um, and pro se means uh, people uh, who are in a court proceeding, but they're representing themselves. Yes. So they don't, they're in court, but they don't have a lawyer. Yes. And, you know, I should eliminate that from my vocabulary because it's a little antiquated now. It should be unrepresented litigants. But um, I think the affordability aspect when it comes to mediation is so key. And pre-suit mediation allows people to really understand um, what could happen um, before uh, the courts are involved and understand like that so much of their wealth can go into the battle of trying to get a resolution through a judge or through uh, the court system uh, from court uh, mandatory mediations. I asked about whether your litigants are represented by attorneys because uh, to a large extent, our customers are attorneys. Yeah. Uh, and we, this is a business, okay? Yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, there's there's a spiritual dynamic to it, and there's a psychology associated with it, and we we derive uh, fulfillment from our work. You know, we feel as though we're making the world a better place. But at the same time, this is a business, and we have customers. And I wonder how you balance... Um, the well, let me let me just start with this. I I operate from a, an assumption that the lawyers are looking for a settlement. Do do you think that that is true? I I wonder uh, how how many lawyers, uh, having participated in a a long mediation and they're getting your bill and they're looking at it, are going to say, well, we didn't settle the case, but you know, we, we did expand the world of possibilities. I think that attorneys want a settlement period. I mean, they want, especially because a divorce and uh, family cases kind of never end. Well, okay. So I agree with you there. I think, I think that that is the customer demand, right? Yes. Customers are coming and they want settlements. And it occurs to me that there's this tension between the way a lot of us think about the work, right? Uh, the, the way that we've been talking about that, you and I have not spent this entire conversation talking about like, okay, if somebody comes up with this objection to settlement, here's how you kind of jujitsu around that and like make them settle the case. You know, yes. like we're, we're not talking about like the nuts and bolts. You and I are talking about like these theoretical ideas about, you know, like making yeah. people feel safe and, you know, heard and expanding the world of possibilities and all that kind of stuff. And they're, they're related. Right. Um, but uh, how do you, how do you balance out this the business aspect and the customer demand uh, for settlement against uh, these larger considerations or or separate considerations that we've been talking about, where it's not entirely clear that the purpose of the process is just to settle the case. I think when it comes down to in thinking about all the parties that are there and the attorneys it shifts your goals as the mediator because we're as the authority we we do as much as we can we push back we become contrarians at times we um are a little bit more forceful about you know what can be done um you know for you you because you're an established attorney you can speak to like what's typically going to happen in court i i don't engage in that i can say what t typically can happen on an emotional and social level which is um depletion of r revenue or depletion of energy um and you know possibly estrangement from uh the child and you know your life and happiness and well-being so when it comes down to trying to get a settlement, I, I truly weigh um, for that the the litigant and for the attorneys about like what are the priorities? Okay, what is the most important? Is it the you know 
income and wealth from property division, which is called equitable distribution, or spousal support and child support um, and custody, which has a, a straight connection between uh, child support. Or is it something completely different? Because who knows what that kind of life changes that are, are happening. There might be a fiance in the waiting in the wings for um, the person to end their current marriage to start a new one. Like there could be a situation where they're trying to move across state or move internationally and understanding the um, situation of like how custody will work from very far away. I think that those Things are so key and may take precedent uh, from settling the whole thing to settle uh, the issue in a part. And um, as a business person providing a service, that's so um, key to understanding like what your the per- what your client needs and to providing it. And you know. Uh, Steve, that there's some certain times where you settle a mediation in part and then they come right back to you and you get it all settled. And isn't that so rewarding? Um, because, you know, sometimes fatigue sets in and, you know, there might be a timing issue when it comes to uh, the services that are provided um, that, you know, you're not going to get the whole thing done and then they come back to you and then you get the other issues that were still um, out there kind of handled too. And that's always the most exciting, right? To get everything done within its own time. I had a lawyer say to me once, and I stole it, and I've said it a hundred times since then, that case doesn't always settle at mediation, but it often settles because of mediation. Mm -hmm. And um, and I think you're right. I, I think you're absolutely right. From a business standpoint, it's important if we're not going to resolve the whole thing in the moment, let's see if we can accomplish something, right? Mm-hmm. And in a in a divorce context, it may be settling one out of the four issues that need to be dealt with or something like that. You've made meaningful progress. Um, in the civil litigation context, there may be certain understandings about d- discovery, even scheduling matters, or even possibly just improving the relations, uh, just the, the channel of communication among the litigants. And, and that leads me to uh, something that I think is an interesting and possibly underappreciated dynamic in conflict resolution of, of court disputes, and that is the lawyers and the extent to which um, the lawyers are personally involved in the conflict and part of the conflict and sometimes they're exacerbating the conflict frankly okay yeah and and i you know i think of the lawyers very sympathetically but you know as a lawyer myself i know quite well what it's like to have a case that i used to call them the cases that ruined my life right at any given time i would always have i would always have at least one there'd be one so you you hope that it's just one but there's always like one case that's kind of ruining your life. It's the case that is bitter and acrimonious and everything's a challenge and it's the one inevitably that's going to ruin Christmas or that's going to cause you to have to cancel your plans for the weekend or whatever. You know, it's just, it's the case that's sort of out there. And when, when mediation rolls around, you as the lawyer really want to settle the case you know yeah. what I mean? like it would be really nice for that case to be settled so that you as the lawyer can put it behind you as a human being you see what i'm saying yeah I, I think we're very used to uh focusing on the parties and we direct our and a lot of lawyers quite frankly are uh invested in maintaining an image both internally and externally as being strong and immune to uh yeah, frailty and you know able to handle anything that comes their way and, and and all that's very true but at the same time we also all know that 
we have a lot of sleepless nights and we wake up first thing in the morning thinking about, uh, you know, there's no secret that it's a high stress profession with all of the things that go with that in terms of uh, mental health challenges and substance abuse challenges Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And I, I think there's a limit to which you can bring the lawyers expressly into the conversation about resolution or it has to be sensitively done. But I think the understanding of that reality and the fact that the lawyers are people just like the litigants are people. um, If there's a way of communicating that and bringing an acknowledgement of that or an acceptance of that uh, into the process uh, can help it be a uh, rewarding experience for everybody, especially if you, if you do get that, uh, resolution in the end whether it's on mediation day or somewhere down the road i i agree I, and it goes back to that conflict with literacy aspect right like with the attorney is there issue with their client that is particularly litigious and have a conflict within their personality um is that conflict with the other attorney who's not receiving emails that are particularly uh litigious um, that don't necessarily have the same purpose or the same values. Because some people who engage in mediation um, is just going through the process of, you know, going to mediation, having that requirement done, and then wanting to go to court to prove their worth as an attorney, Right. Um, some attorneys want to go to mediation to get this settled and get this handled um, so they can move on to the next case within their caseload. So that's a whole thing. And then also understanding, you know, the conflict of efficacy and worth for an attorney um, when it, it's, handling their case and being the best attorney that they can like there's a swirling that happens within the mediation session where you have someone who's supposed to be a zealous advocate and uh, legal representation for their client but then their needs too so there's layers upon layers um, of needs that have to be met and that's what we're always trying to do it's like uh, an emotional jenga while still handling those processes um and managing it all together and it speaks back to um utilizing different areas like you know the structure of mediation but that psychological piece and um being a conflict resolution practitioner as well as a mediator, as well as, you know, a facilitator. And I think that the fact that within our industry that we um, basically omitted the A in alternative dispute resolution, that really speaks to things like mediation and arbitration, um, as a method alternatively to litigation to dispute resolution that is so much more sprawling and incorporates so many other things like collaborative law as um, a method, uh, facilitation as a method, divorce coaching, for example. It brings in this whole new world and all these new um, practitioners with different experiences as academics, as um, you know, professionals like myself, as attorneys like your, like you, um, that is going to make such a mixture of people engaging in the space and um, a, a larger call philosophically uh, f- for us to do multiple things in our spaces at the same time. I'm curious about your thoughts on the role of your personal identity uh, and how that corresponds with your role as a mediator. So I am a middle-aged straight white man who 
uh, fits a demographic that is uh, quite famously not underrepresented in mm -hmm. uh, the profession, right? Uh, it is, uh, it, it's easy to find people who look like me uh, doing this type of work. Uh, you are younger, you're a gay man, you are black, and you have talked about uh, how interesting it is in this moment uh, of American history that gay people are now allowed to be married, and this is a relatively recent historical phenomenon, which has many wonderful things that goes with it, but, but it also includes the fact that gay people are now getting divorced, right? And so, mm -hmm. and, and there are children, and there is equitable distribution of property. And you know, I've been thinking lately about uh, how who we are uh, intersects with how we do our work and how, what we bring to our work. And, you know, we know that the lawyers who choose us as their mediators uh, select us for certain cases that they think we're going to be good for, for yeah. whatever reason, right? And, you know, for, for good or for bad. Uh, you know, you, you're either getting the gig or you're not, right? And sometimes that's just based on um, things that are beyond your control or separate from your, uh, your skills, you know, in the abstract. And I, I just wonder how your personal experience of life uh, informs the work that you do. I think that it from from a business standpoint, I think it changes who I'm marketing to. Um, I am marketing to attorneys to an extent, but I'm also marketing to the public and trying to break down in uh, very clear terms that this mediation and divorce coaching is something that will have value in your lives and can save you from engaging in the court system, which, you know, pe marginalized people who uh, may have a wariness um, for the court system may really want to opt for that. Um, and, you know, also that kind of changes the way that I engage with attorneys because as you know, in a mediation, we mediate, we create a summary, but we cannot draft. And I'm not an attorney, so I cannot draft anyway. But pivoting to providing um, my mediation summaries to become binding contracts is another application that um, makes my services in enticing too because I have more than one avenue for attorneys to be within our process and um, you know, benefit from it, not just as the mediator who's resolving their cases, but as the mediator who's providing um, a, a case for drafting or review services that, you know, provides them with some level of income. So that's one aspect. Also, the representation aspect is being a black gay male, um, there is a juxtaposition that I think works really well for me um, especially a black gay male of size and large size and stature I'm kind of like the black Santa Claus in a lot of ways <laughs> because um, there is a certain level of safety and um, trust that people have with me of being this like large thoughtful kind of wise men on the hill that um kind of detracts from my age uh, with being a younger uh, dispute resolution professional and um, shows a certain level of uh, wisdom that I think that a lot of uh, marginalized people, racialized people, um, and the reason why I use racialized is that like so many of us who happen to be minorities didn't choose this and so uh, racialization is a verb and not a, a noun. Um, and, you know, there's a whole theory of racelessness uh, that we can get into. But um, I think that it's so important to, for people to know that uh, the nuances that we have, like 
when it comes to family mediations and talking about uh, hair politics for black women or talking about, you know, Jewish um, divorces uh, and the spiritual divorce and the actual legal divorce, um, having a, a conversation about all these different nuances for uh, racialized or marginalized people um, is very different. Uh, and even with like LGBTQ uh, individuals, uh, there is a certain pride about getting married um, and having it be such a hard uh, fought and won victory and then getting a divorce that has a certain level of shame for the people who waited so long i i think that that's why there's such a bursting of the bubble that's happening which will change quite drastically in the next couple of decades because the younger generation may not have fought that you know Mm -hmm. and thus they will be more uh willing to get divorced instead of you know, holding out because there's a certain level of respectability to, you know, legitimizing their relationships and their sexual orientation or gender expression through their relationship. I think it's fascinating the way that um, you describe increasing rates of gay divorce as a potential consequence, a salutary consequence of uh, the entrenched acceptance of gay marriage in society like it's it's actually like a good thing in a way right it's it's reflective of progress and at the same time you know just a few minutes ago you mentioned uh that being a large black man can put people at ease and make them feel safe with you and i think this is uh part and parcel of who you are which, uh, in my observation, is a relentlessly positive, uh, kind, and caring person. Uh, remarkably so. And I wonder where that comes from. I think it's um, as a caregiver uh, growing up. My grandmother lived with us, and um, she suffered from multiple sclerosis was, and was invalid. And there is something about um, living with my mother, who was a single mother, and a part of the sandwich generation, and taking care of her mother while raising me, and then looking at my grandmother, who was dependent on both my mother and I uh, for care, for nourishment, for you know hygiene needs, and just seeing both of those women do the best that they can um, and me doing the best that I can and understanding that empathy was such a foundation to the trinity of our relationship as an intergenerational household. And I think that... Once you start to care for someone, whether you you have a child and they need you or for my situation, I'm watching someone deteriorate until death um, that you take care of, I think that it brings a whole nother level of humanity to you. And I think that it was so great to experience despite the pitfalls and the sacrifices that I had to make in my adolescence and um, the lessons of trying to transcend that um, in my early 20s to now. Uh, But that's where it comes from. Um, And I think compassion is so key to civilize um, our world that is kind of shifting to a certain level of irrelevance and uh, nihilism that I find to be particularly scary. But also understanding the um, fears and, and yearnings of people who may live a totally different life than me. 
So whether it's the pig farmer in Mebane, North Carolina, to, you know, the uh, low-income, you know, urbanite who is just trying to live paycheck to paycheck to, you know, someone who is making good money but feels misunderstood. We all are dealing with need. It is genderless. It is, um, you know, raceless, and it's universal. Well, Salim, I greatly look forward to uh, watching you continue to build on the success that you are already experiencing in our profession and to continuing uh, learning from you about how we do what we do. And I'm so happy that we met each other in the back row of the Family Financial Certification course, a course that for me was useful uh, almost entirely for the people who I met uh, <laughs> and not for the credential itself. Uh, but you are certainly uh, among the most important people who I met that, that came out of that. And I'm so glad we know each other. And I'm immensely grateful that you would spend your time with me today uh, on the Steve Dunn podcast. Thank you for having me and the feelings are mutual. Mm-hmm.